Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. This is, a, this is exciting for me because if you've been following with us, we've been in kind of a months-long teaching series on spiritual disciplines. And uh, Pastor Adam last week shared on the call of God, which served as kind of a transition for us into our next theme of teaching. And I'm excited to let you know that we're going to be jumping into the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, actually, the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians and studying the Corinthian church, which should be exciting. But how many of you guys have heard the sentiment expressed that there isn't a perfect church? The idea of it is that if you find a perfect church, you probably shouldn't go there because then it won't be perfect anymore. And that the kind of the thought process is, is that churches are made up of people and people aren't perfect, so therefore there are no perfect churches. <laughs> I like to think that we're pretty close here, that we, we've, we've got an edge on it. Um, but then I wake up and realize that uh, that's not the truth and that's not honest. Um, we have lots of room for improvement here at Open Door Church. There is a standard that God calls us to, and I don't want to pretend like we just have it all figured out and that we've got the perfect doctrine and we've got the perfect way of doing things. We've got the perfect flow of, of services and uh, everything is just figured out. But the reality is um, there's never going to be a perfect church. An Open Door Church will likely, uh, not likely, it isn't going to be perfect until Jesus comes back for his bride. Um, there isn't a perfect church because a perfect church would require perfect people. And I know that that's something pretty basic and we all recognize the thought process there. But it doesn't stop people from jumping around from church to church to church to church and trying to find the, the perfect church, if you will. And it's probably the most overused excuse that I've heard for why people aren't involved in the family of God, and it's an excuse that people use for not going to church somewhere, is because the church is filled with imperfect people. It's kind of the same thought process behind people that don't, don't go to the gym because it's full of fat people, right? <laughs> it's absurd, is it not? <laughs> like, that's probably a good sign to go to a gym where there are unhealthy people trying to get healthy. And I think it's a good sign if you find a church where there are some unhealthy people that are present because they want to be more like Jesus. And the church ought to be a safe place for us to grow more like Jesus. But we have people that jump around from church to church because the church let them down or the pastor disappointed them. The church is full of imperfect people being made perfect, though. And I think that's important for us to comprehend. That's something important for us to grasp. That open-door church may be imperfect. It's full of imperfect people, but we are being made perfect. We are being made like Christ. And some mistakenly overlook this process of sanctification and they demand 100% perfection right here, right now. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you won't find that here. And so uh, if I'm being real, let me, let me like set some realistic expectations for you. 
this church, Open Door Church, is going to let you down. Uh, me, as a pastor, Pastor Nate Ward, ordained with the Assemblies of God, is going to disappoint you. I'm going to disappoint you. I probably already have this morning, multiple times. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to do things you don't like, and this church is probably going to do things that don't fit your vibe, if you will. I'm not saying that we do this intentionally or that we've set out with some kind of agenda to offend and disappoint you, but the reality is we're simply not perfect yet. I, I, read, this, I read this kind of a little excerpt on the internet, and it comes from the Rochester Courier Journal. It was first printed in 1981 by an anonymous author. And so if you know who this person is, maybe it was you that wrote this. I'd love to talk to you. But uh, nobody kind of knows who wrote this, but it's, it gives good insight into what you should be looking for when you're looking into uh, churches and you're trying to find a perfect pastor, if you will. So I wrote this down. I thought it'd be fun to share this morning. This was the definition of what a perfect pastor should look like. Admittedly, this was 1981, so let's go back a little bit. It says, the perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. And so uh, I've already disqualified myself. But he condemns sin roundly, but he never hurts anybody's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight, and he's also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week, and he wears great clothes, he drives an awesome car, he buys good books, and he donates $40 a week to the church. <laughs> you could tell this was written in 1981, right? <laughs> he is 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. <laughs> Above all, this is one I have, he is handsome <laughs> and has hair. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time, but with a straight face, because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to the, the church. He makes 15 home visits a day and always in his office to be handy when needed, and the perfect pastor always has time for the church, council, and all of its committees. He never misses the meetings of any church organization, and he is always busy evangelizing the unchurch. The perfect pastor is always the next church over. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send him this notice and send this notice to six other churches that are tied or that are tired of their pastor too, then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you'll receive 1,643 pastors. And one of them should be perfect. I thought that was funny and it was silly. And I'm really grateful that I don't encounter this kind of sentiment or this kind of expectation from the majority of the people most of the time. But it, I, do get, I do get the occasional email or the occasional text message that leaves me scratching my head thinking, wow. In all honesty, you guys are probably a little too gracious to me as your pastor. I'm, I'm grateful for that. In fact, I was talking with Aaron I don't know, I guess it was two weeks ago, we were playing Ultimate Frisbee, and I was giving him a ride home, and we were talking about, uh, we were talking about working out, and he was talking about a coach he had in high school, and I was talking about the cycling class I take. I don't know about you guys, but uh, for me, I, I was taking a cycling class, 
and there was this kind of tutti-frutti, like this is a safe place for you to work out. There is nobody that fails in this class. You just try your best and do your darndest, and we're going to work out. And it was kind of like all this positive energy, and I don't respond well to that. I need the instructor that's like militant on the bike that is just sitting there yelling at me, you, you dirt bag, can you get on the bike and can you ride or something like that and just uh, real demeaning. I respond better to that kind of uh, provocation in terms of uh, demanding excellence. And so um, maybe you guys should be harder on me as your pastor. I don't know where the spiritual impli... Yeah, that's the word. Uh, comes from in this, um, but um, yeah, there's a connection there. I'll make it later tonight when I'm trying to sleep and be like, man, I should have said that. And so this is a sermon. This is a sermon series about not expecting perfection from the church and your pastor, right? That's what this kind of setup, this what this introduction would naturally lend itself to. The problem with that is Jesus actually does expect perfection from us. You'd be like, man, Jesus, can't you lower the standard a little bit? That's a little harsh, is it not? Right? We all know, like, we're not perfect people. My pastor just told me we're not perfect people, and we're not going to be perfect people. So how can Jesus demand perfection from us? He says very plainly in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says that you should be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. crud. (laughs) That's a a hard standard to me, right? Jesus would go on to say, when when we're talking about a a perfect church, I know that that doesn't exist right now, but I understand that Jesus is coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle, that he's coming back for a pure and spotless bride. He's coming back for a perfect church, He says this in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, after he talks about giving up his life and giving himself for his church, he says this, he says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her, talking about the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So our call as a church, as the bride of Christ, as Open Door Church, is to be holy, to exist without blemish. And so the truth is, the church isn't perfect. Open Door Church is not perfect. But just because we're not perfect doesn't mean we stop trying. Doesn't mean that there isn't a standard to set the mark for. That there is something that God calls us to, and it is higher. And so I, I, think, it's, I think it's a shame when we settle for, oh man, I'm just human. Right? Or, oh man, we're just broken. We're just always going to live in this mindset of failure. God calls us to something higher. And so for the next number of weeks, we're going to begin to study the Corinthian church. And some of you might know where this is going, but this was a church that was planted by Paul, the apostle himself, the guy that wrote the majority of the New Testament. This dude is the man. 
And he planted this church in Corinth. It was filled with notable teachers. You've got Apollos. You've got Peter. It was experiencing rapid growth. The manifestations and the gifts of the Spirit were prominent. And it would probably fit into most of our kind of definitions of what a church in revival looked like. This was a church that was filled with the Holy Spirit, that wild, crazy things were happening. Some of the coolest testimonies come out of the church in Corinth. But in spite of all of the cool stuff that God was doing, we have a good chunk of Paul's writing in the New Testament spent addressing this church and its problems and its issues and the things that they didn't get right. And so this is going to be a kind of a fun one for us to kind of look at the historical church of Corinth, seeing what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, wrote to this church, kind of looking at our lives and looking at our church, see what applies and what, what sticks and what convicts us here. And I believe that just like Paul wrote to the Corinthians, just like he brought correction to the Corinthian church, that God is still using his words to bring correction to his bride today. Because the ultimate goal is not that we would have a big church, not that we would have some kind of impressive ministry, but that we would be a people, that we would be a bride, that we would be God's people that is presented to him pure and holy, without spot or blemish, that we'd be presented as mature unto God. That is our goal, that is our aim, and that is what we're excited about. So before we dig into the actual book of 1 Corinthians, I thought it would be kind of cool to start in the book of Acts, looking at the foundation of this church, how it was founded, and we kind of get a, a historical snapshot of that in Acts chapter 18. So if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, I'm just going to briefly read this to you guys so you kind of have a backdrop of where we're going with this book. And it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. I need you to understand this. Paul shows up in Corinth. He's preaching in the synagogues. The people begin to blaspheme by saying, Jesus is not the Messiah. So Paul shakes his hands of it and says, you know what? I'll go preach the gospel to those who want to hear it. And he sets up residence next door to the synagogue. 
and somehow still shows that he has compassion. He's not shutting off the Jews to salvation. But in doing so, it seems like he wasn't gathering all the traction that he wanted to when he was preaching in the, in the synagogue. So he stops preaching in the synagogue. And then who gets saved? The ruler of the synagogue. Yeah. <laughs> that was next door. And it's just one of those ways that uh, the Lord works that leaves you scratching your head. And they were believing they were baptized. Not only that, if you continue, which we won't get to all the way through Acts chapter 18, we'll go on to see that, the, that, that this guy's replacement, Crispus's replacement, Sophnesis, actually gets saved as well. And so it's, it's cool. But so the ruler of the synagogue gets saved. And then in verse 9, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. I'm sharing this because I want you to grasp the rich spiritual foundation of the church in Corinth. This wasn't some kind of fly-by-night church plant. This was something that Paul labored with for uh, 18 months in, in, in diligent teaching and labor. It would said that he would work in the mornings, he would make tents, and he'd finish up by, uh, by one in the afternoon, and that he'd spend his entire afternoon and evening teaching and evangelizing, is how most, most scholars understand how he was planning the church in Corinth. And we later on have a kind of record in 2 Corinthians that they did begin to support him financially, so he, had to, so he didn't have to continue making tents, but was able to uh, kind of pioneer this ministry of planning this church in Corinth. But this, this guy, Paul, he's the apostle. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was this guy that was responsible for the evangelism and planting of the church in Corinth. So this wasn't just kind of like a no-name guy. This was, this was Paul the Apostle. We read that Silas and Timothy both visit this church in Corinth. We later learn that it was graced with exceptional teachers, Apollos, and we understand Peter was actually a teacher here at this church in Corinth. This church was a church that was set up for success from the beginning. It was in a difficult place. It was, there, there's all kinds of historical things that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. I don't want to unload a big history lesson for you all just right here. I could geek out and get really excited about a lot of the different things. But I want you to understand this was a church that was set up for success. Yet the church still had issues that needed to be dealt with. And so I'm saying this, don't grow discouraged because the family of God is messy. Please do not give up on the bride of Christ because it's not all perfect. It's something that Jesus is actively working in to make his church holy. And so with that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to start by just going through verses one through three, and then we'll take a little break here. But it says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God in Sophnesis, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter begins much like of many, many of Paul's letters, his epistles, his writings and teachings to the churches. And we're going to be coming back 
to this introduction throughout our teaching on Corinthians because uh, here he kind of provides an overview of what he's going to be talking about. And so beginning in verse 1, we see his assertion of the role of the apostle. He's, he's kind of, uh, he, he begins to assert the fact that he is an apostle appointed not by man, but by the will of God. This is a point of contention amongst the Corinthians. It's something that an, is an issue that comes up. And uh, Paul here is, um, he, he's making the very clear statement that he's saying what he's saying under the authority of God himself, not just because he thinks he's all that. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in the coming weeks when we get to it later on in the book. But um, I think it's interesting that he begins the thrust of his letter with that. And we also encounter this man named Sophnesis. And I would encourage you guys to go back and read Acts chapter 18. If you read it all the way through, we see that Sophnesis is the guy that replaces Crispus as the ruler of the Corinthian synagogue after uh, Crispus begins following Jesus. Then we understand that Sophnesis begins to follow Jesus and he gets beaten for it because he is seemingly protecting Paul from, the, from Galileo. And uh, it's just, it's interesting. And so it's just kind of cool how all these things tie together. And then we get to verse two where it says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And I, I wanna read this. Uh, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. The primary theme of unity comes to the forefront very quickly here uh, in the first two verses of 1 Corinthians. And it's something that we see as a major struggle for the Corinthian churches where they're not operating and living together in unity. And it's something that is breaking the heart of Paul and breaking the heart of God. And so we see that the church in Corinth was divided. It was fractioned. And Paul reminds them, as well as us, that we're part of something much bigger than any man. We're united with all in every place who call on the name of Jesus. And so this is where we get validity for this book, not just speaking to the ancient Corinthian church, but understanding that it transcends time and it transcends culture in the fact that we are all called as one family united under the banner of Jesus Christ himself, which I think is pretty cool. I love the language that he uses there. But he also uses this term sanctified in Christ Jesus, meaning to be made holy. And then he goes on to call the Corinthians saints. And we don't have a lot of time to, to nerd out on this, but we're going to talk about it in future weeks. Um, but something that's really helpful for us to understand as we're exploring the Corinthian church is understanding the culture of Corinth. Corinth was a major cultural hub, and the easiest way for us to, for me to draw kind of a parallel is kind of picturing Las Vegas as Sin City, for those of you guys that have been there. But, you know, Sin City is, and Las Vegas is kind of tame in comparison to what was taking place in Corinth at that day. In the ancient world, it had a reputation for being a place of uh, debauchery and drunkenness and just sexual craziness. They, they were known for having all kinds of 
all kinds of crazy things taking place. And to be known as a Corinthian was synonymous for being known as someone of ill repute. Uh, it was to be known as a drunkard and to be sexually wayward, all these different things. Um, it's, it's kind of fascinating. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the future. I just need you to understand it was a wild place. And that culture eventually begin to drift over into the, into the church. And so a lot of the issues that we see happening in the Corinthian church that Paul uh, brings kind of explicit direction to and teaching and correction about um, is a result of the culture that this church was planted in and what was uh, deemed normal. And how many of you guys know our society right now is pretty crazy? It's pretty backwards. They're saying a lot of things that are good that actually aren't. And it's very similar to what was happening with the church in Corinth where the culture was deeming what was right and wrong and they weren't relying on the scriptures and the word of the Lord. And that is something that we need to be precise and intent about making sure um, we're not calling good evil and evil good. Does that make sense? So we're going to get into all this, but... Um, I just think it's cool that Paul still refers to them as saints in this kind of introductory uh, chapter. He, he recognizes that they're still called of the Lord, having issues, uh, you know, having their shortcomings, their struggles with sin even. Um, they didn't negate them from the family of God. I need you to understand this, that just because there was a mess at Corinth didn't exclude them from the family of God. There were things wrong and they needed to be addressed, but Paul wasn't willing to say, man, this church is just too far gone that it can't be helped. He had a deliberate, intentional response here. And I think it's important that we understand that there are things that need to be dealt with, uh, hence this kind of letter <laughs> that Paul writes, but it's not an automatic exclusion from what God's doing even if there's things that need to be corrected. And so if we're going to continue into verses 4 through 9, this is where I really kind of wanted to primarily focus this morning. This is all just kind of serving as an introduction into where we're going into this book. But verses 4 through 9 is a prayer of thanksgiving that Paul offers up. And he says this, I thank my God always concerning you, talking about the Corinthian church, for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is going to spend the majority of his letter rebuking sin and correcting error in the Corinthian church. And so it might be easy for you to read this or hear this and somehow kind of imply some sort of flattery that was being said here that was going to lessen the blow that Paul was about to drop upon this church. But I need you to understand something. This is not flattery. 
I don't believe that this is kind of hyperbole or that it's just kind of some kind of tactic of Paul to, to make them sound better than they actually were. I think this is very genuine thankfulness uh, from Paul for this church, for God's people. And there's a hopeful recognition that God's grace is sufficient for them. And that's something that I take encouragement. I love that Paul begins with this prayer of thanksgiving, even knowing there are things wrong, even knowing there are things that need to be made right. He has this attitude of thankfulness for the grace of God at work in this church and at work in people's lives. And I think that that's something that many of us miss out on. I think many of us are quick to just look at somebody's mess and look at something that's wrong with somebody's life and not have any gratitude or hope that the grace of God is sufficient to deal with the mess that exists. I believe that's the reason why Paul was able to write this letter, the reason why Paul was able to follow up on it, and it's obviously the reason why the Corinthian church was able to respond well to it is because that there was this understanding that the grace of God is sufficient for us to change. Cool. So the grace of God is demonstrated in the lives of the Corinthians in a number of ways. Uh, we see here, he talks about all utterance and all knowledge. Um, some of your translations will actually say all speech. And so, so we see that it's demonstrated in the lives of the Corinthians by what they say about Jesus, as well as what they've learned about Jesus when we're talking about all knowledge. And all of this specifically revolves around the testimony of Christ. Paul says that it was confirmed that Jesus was proved true because of the changes that took place in the Corinthians' life. As a pastor, there is something that just really kind of uh, sparks joy in me, and it's when I hear people begin to say things that are true about Jesus. Um, I, I share examples. Uh, I've been really blessed by our time in Deeper Project on Tuesday nights. This last Tuesday night was just a wild kind of just blessing for me as a pastor, as I sat back down, we had 34 people that were active and engaged and just excited to study the scriptures. On a Tuesday night, we, we ran out of tables. Like it was, it was wild. And these people are excited um, to study the Bible. And they're excited to, to teach about Jesus. And uh, Joey, you know, jumped up and says, you know what, I can't wait to teach about Jesus next week. And I want to teach John chapter 7. And it, there was something exciting about me because there used to be a time where we would come to Deeper Project and Pastor Adam and Daniel and I would have to kind of sit around and a lot of it was us letting people kind of say what they wanted to say and us having to bring correction and be like, no, actually that's heresy and that's not right <laughs> uh, or, or some, something along those lines. But can I tell you, it's been a long time. Uh, since that's happened, that there's been an evidence that God is doing something in people's lives and they're saying things about Jesus that are true. That is so cool. Man, I told Lucas I was going to pick on you this morning. Man, uh, just hearing some of the things that you were saying last week as you responded to Adam's message. Man, where you were talking about uh, just the, the faithfulness of Jesus and how Jesus satisfies and how there's all these different places you can go and all these different things that have good things to offer, but none of them actually tell you what to do with that knowledge, but Jesus does. 
man, there was something that just burst alive inside of me hearing you have this testimony of Jesus Christ. And this is something that is so cool because we see that there was, there was actual speech. The way, what, the way they talked was uh, representative of God's grace at work in them. So they had things to say about who Jesus was. And Paul recognizes that and says, that's, a, that's, a, that's evidence of God's grace at work with you. And the same thing with the knowledge. They were rich in knowledge about who Jesus was. They knew things about God. They, they, they knew Jesus. And this is something that Paul is like over the moon, man, just excited about. And there's hope here because they know Jesus. They're able to talk about Jesus. And it's evidence of, uh, of the testimony of Christ, it's being confirmed in them. It's really cool. And so as you kind of go on here, I, I think I broke down these, first, these four verses of Scripture um, to maybe be a little simpler to understand. I said essentially what is being said about the Corinthian church is this. These people proclaim Jesus. They know about Jesus. They're actively utilizing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It says that they lack no spiritual gift. They, they are experiencing the fruitfulness and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to talk about. That's going to be wild. That's going to be fun. Um, and they're excited about the return of Jesus. They're living expectantly in light of Jesus coming back. And so I share this. Um, because these are impressive points, right? These are good things. They're thumbs up. But in spite of all of that, there were things that God wanted to address and make sure uh, that there was appropriate correction that was brought to the church. And I, I share this because I hear the sim sentiment a lot, and I've probably been guilty of sharing this, where we've been praying for revival, and we, we have this mindset that all we need is revival. And I think the danger, especially within Pentecostal circles, is that there's almost this elitist mentality that, man, if, if they just experience the presence of God in such a way, everything else would be set right. You know, if there was a, a move of God like we had in Brownsville, man, then everything would be perfect. Man, if, if people started getting laid out in the spirit and everybody was speaking in tongues and there was prophecy up the wazoo, man, then that would be the mark of a mature church. But can I tell you, the kind of the, the definition of a Pentecostal church is marked out here in the book of 1 Corinthians. They were, if I can say, too Pentecostal. Paul needs to tell them to calm down a little bit, <laughs> to, to don't get too carried away. And even in the midst of all of the gifts of the Spirit that are active and evident in the church, in the book, in, in the church of Corinth, wow, in the Corinthian church, ooh, I don't know why I couldn't say that, um, there was something missing, and Paul says they lack spiritual maturity. I think about in Ephesians chapter 4 when he begins to talk about the gifts given to the church and he talks, about, uh, he talks about the ministry that's given to the church, how he talks about pastors and apostles and teachers and evangelists are given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry that they might be presented as mature. He talks about the church being built up in unity and maturity to be presented to the Lord. 
And I want you to understand, because we're going to begin to teach on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're doing this thing called prayer and practice on Wednesday night. We believe in the moving of the Holy Spirit. It's something that we desire and something that we want, but we're not interested in just more Pentecostal pizzazz, if you will, added to what we're doing because that doesn't actually change things. I I believe that the, the Holy Spirit being present is something that is so necessary, but people are speaking in tongues in Corinth and splitting churches. They're operating in gifts of prophecy, but they don't love one another. And us just having spiritual gifts is not enough. I want to be clear with that. Us just being Pentecostal is not enough. And I don't want us to miss the mark and some kind of have this elevated thought that, you know, you know if the gifts of the Spirit are present, then somehow that's a mark of a, of a spiritually mature church because that's not the case. The gifts are not reserved for the more spiritually mature. They're given because they're gifts, not because they've been earned by any stretch of the imagination. The gifts of the Spirit are given so that we can become mature. And they work in our lives so that we can be presented as a mature bride, as as one that is spiritually mature and not lacking. And I just want us to have a, a right mindset as we step into this study because I look at the book of First and Second Corinthians and I look at the letters that Paul wrote and I see a church that is full of God in full-blown revival and good things are happening. But the, as Paul would call them, they're still spiritual babes. And I desire for us as a church to, yes, experience the fullness of the Spirit of God, experience the gifts of the Spirit of God, but also with the mindset that our goal, our end aim is not to experience spiritual gifts. Our end aim, our our ultimate goal is to be presented as spiritually mature, as operating in unity, And guess what? The spiritual gifts aid us in that. And I'm excited as we kind of jump into that on Wednesday nights. We're going to be tackling some of that on Sunday mornings as we work through 1 Corinthians. Um, But it's just something uh, something that I'm passionate about because God was present in the Corinthian church. There's no doubt about that. Just like I believe he's present in our church. But guess what? The church was still messy, and people are still messy. <laughs> this is what 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9 says. Paul ends on this positive note in his introduction. He says, Who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? He uses that word, blameless. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How is it, I want to pose this question, how is it that Paul can be confident that this church will be presented blameless when the Corinthian church is filled with so many problems? And I may have done us a disservice here because you're like, you keep hearing me talk about the problems in the Corinthian church and you're like, well, what are those? 
They were given into full-blown uh, sexual sin and approval and celebration of sexual sin. They were uh, divided amongst one another. They were suing one another. They were gluttonous at the Lord's table. They had disrespect for communion. They had all these different things that were wrong, <laughs> which we're going to talk about. <laughs> there, there, there was a whole host of problems. You know how they love making Netflix documentaries about churches right now? And everything that's like wrong and, you know, we had like a Hillsong one and there's a podcast out every other week about churches blowing up. Um, if there were podcasts in Paul's day, I guarantee you there would have probably been a podcast about the rise and fall of the Corinthian church. I'm just guessing because there were a lot of things that were messy. There were a lot of things that were wrong. But Paul doesn't give up hope on the Corinthian church. And how is it that he doesn't give up hope when it's filled with so many problems? And I think the simple answer is the faithfulness of God. That's what verses 8 and 9 tell us there, that God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He writes something very similar to the church in Philippi when he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I am confident that we may not be there yet, we may not be perfect, but I am confident in the faithfulness of God that he is going to see this thing through. That what he has begun in his church and what he has begun in your life, he is faithful to see it through to completion. And you may have setbacks, you may have missteps, and you may be in full-blown rebellion and sin towards God, but I have hope that his grace is still sufficient. I have hope that he can draw you back. And I have hope that he can make good things come out of your mess. That's right. yeah. I have a confidence, just like Paul did, that he who began a good work is faithful to see it through to completion. The very last words of verse 9, Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to take note of something interesting here. I thought this was fascinating. If you read these first nine, actually the first 10 verses here of 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that every single verse that we've already read in 1 Corinthians makes mention of Jesus Christ. Every single verse. In fact, he's mentioned 11 times in these first 10 verses. <laughs> There's this emphasis here on Jesus being the solution to the problems that are plaguing the Corinthian church. And it should serve as a reminder to us that it's Jesus who builds his church. It's Jesus who corrects and disciplines those he loves. It's Jesus who sanctifies. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ and the hope of a messy church is Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that that Jesus promised that he would build his church and that he didn't place that burden on me. <laughs> but he promises to build his church and he promises that the gates of hell will not triumph against it. Are we perfect? Not yet. <laughs> but Jesus is still in the business of actively making us more like him. That's that sanctification. We're justified. 
We've been made right in his eyes and we're constantly making, being made holy and being made more like him in this process of sanctification. And that's what we're looking forward as we dig into First and Second Corinthians, which I think is going to be a fun time. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot of different variables that we're going to look at. Um, but I think in all of this, it's important for us to have a heart and a mind that will receive correction well. If there's one thing I have learned over the years is that receiving correction and being able to receive correction well is one of the most valuable things a person, a valuable trait a person can have. How many of you guys know you're not perfect? I've already said it like 15 million times. So I'm glad you guys all agree. How many of you guys know that Jesus is perfect? And so if he tells us to do something and he brings gentle correction or maybe even firm correction, we should receive it well. That's not easy. That's hard for a lot of us. But it's something that I want us to be prepared to receive because there are things that are wrong in my life. There are situations that I handle in a wrong way. There are things that I have done. There's attitudes that I have had that are wrong. But I want to invite the Holy Spirit to call me out on those things that are wrong so that they can be made right. And an important aspect of that is receiving correction well. And so we're going to be hitting on things that the Corinthian church was struggling with that I also believe many of us probably struggle with as well. And so as Paul brings correction to the Corinthian church, I want us to be prepared to receive, even though we're at open door church, you know, thousands of years later, to receive that same gentle correction or firm correction from the Holy Spirit. Amen? Because Jesus says this, and this was what he said to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation, Revelation 3.19. He promises to discipline those he loves. He says this, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. And I'm thankful that we have a good father that's willing to tell us when we're wrong. And that's what the book of 1 Corinthians really gets at. First and second Corinthians, I say that. We're not going to be preaching verse by verse like I kind of did this morning. We're not going to hit on every single aspect of every single little bit of nuance. But we are going to be looking at the church in Corinth as a blueprint for what a healthy church should look like. Because we can learn from things that are unhealthy, right? <laughs> There's an example of an unhealthy church at Corinth that had a lot going for it. And I believe it's important for us to take the words of Scripture and the instruction of the Apostle Paul, being able to apply it to our lives so that Jesus might be glorified in who we are as a church and what we're doing. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm really excited about this. And so um, I'm also really excited about Wednesday nights. Um, we've made some big changes. Um, I say big changes. We're still praying. They're not like enormous changes, but we, we are changing up how we do Wednesday nights here at the church uh, for decades now. We've had an ongoing prayer meeting that takes place on Wednesday night here at six o'clock. And this week we're actually kicking off a kind of a little bit of a transition where we're starting something called prayer and practice, where we're going to be, uh, we have live worship, 
where we'll be worshiping the Lord, where we're going to have a brief teaching. It's not going to be like a Sunday morning teaching. It'll be a brief teaching with some instruction. And then we're going to be praying for one another and be putting into practice the things that we're learning. I think it's important. We're going to actually begin with talking about gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we're going to be talking about these things that Scripture instructs us to partake in and, and eagerly expect, it would be the instruction of Paul, or eagerly desire the spiritual gifts is his instruction for us. And so that's something that we want to do because we want to, we want to not just be, um, I, we've kind of thrown this around and uh, this language of, we don't want to be Pentecostal in theology, we want to be Pentecostal in practice as well. And sometimes that comes to a head because we so desire for the things that happen in this church. And we so have a desire for the ministry of Open Door Church to be rooted in the scriptures. And I think for a long time, there's been the camp that you have to have sound doctrine over here and you have to experience God over here. And they're almost at odds with each other where you have the people from the Bible doctrine camp that says, you know what, everything is here. And then you've got the people in the ultra crazy charismatic Pentecostal crowd that are like, it's all about experiencing God and hearing God. And this comes, and, and that's all secondary to Bible and doctrine, which is wrong. Uh, <laughs> but good doctrine and good understanding of the Bible should support encounter with Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it should provoke that in the same way that encounter with the Lord should pro provoke desire for good doctrine and a foundation in scripture. They are not at odds with one another. And it blows my mind that it seems like that's the way that it's kind of gone. Um, we are in this place where we want to make sure that the things that are taught, the things that are practiced, uh, because there's a lot of tutti frutti Pentecostal stuff out there that is not found in scripture that has existed and has been twisted and is just out there that we want to make sure we, we address. If it's not in here, we're not about it. I want to be very clear. If, if, if there's no scriptural precedent for something um, that God's doing, man, we, we want to be clear. This is, we cherish this. We believe it to be authoritative. But at the same vein, uh, we know that the gifts are real. We know that God and his spirit are working and ministering and moving. And we believe that his scripture uh, provides a, an avenue for that, to, for that to happen. And so that's what we're digging into on Wednesday nights. We'd love for you guys to be a part of us. Six o'clock, our first, our first kind of kickoff of this is going to be this Wednesday night at six o'clock. We'd love for you guys to be there. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.